Well, good morning. My name is Brandon Stern. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of serving on our preaching team. And we are continuing our study through the book of Revelation. And it's important for us to remember that this book was written about 2,000 years ago to local churches just like ours that were spread throughout Asia Minor. Churches that were seeking to be faithful to Christ, but were facing intense opposition from the mighty Roman Empire. Christianity was not popular, and it was being attacked and oppressed by Rome. So Revelation is written to strengthen these churches. And in 2,000 years of church history, not much has changed. We today still feel the pressures, the oppositions of the world. Various world leaders throughout history have tried to stomp out and eliminate Christianity from their countries. And many in our culture today are indifferent to or even antagonistic toward Christ and his people. And in America, we feel the, the growing pressures of opposition. We feel the headwinds of the culture growing stronger and stronger against Christ and his people. Christian beliefs are beginning to be viewed with greater suspicion and concern. And for some in our culture, what we believe is actually downright dangerous and must be silenced. However, we must not think that this is something unique that the church has never faced before. For 2,000 years now, our brothers and sisters before us have endured this opposition. And Jesus himself warned us that if we follow him, we will suffer and be hated by the world. And in fact, Jesus modeled this in his own life, what our experience as a church would be like. Christ did not get a suffering-free life. Instead, he had to endure hostile opposition to himself and his ministry that eventually resulted in his unjust trial and death. However, the promise that Jesus holds out to his people is that if they suffer with him, they will also be glorified with him as well. You see, Jesus' story didn't end on the cross. Three days later, he emerged victorious from the grave and then ascended back up into heaven. And this is the glorious hope for the church. Yes, we will suffer for our faith and faithfulness to Christ, but a day is coming when, like Christ, we will be resurrected and enter into glory. And so, for the joy that is set before us, let us endure suffering and shame for the sake of Christ, knowing, believing that we have a glorious future awaiting us in the new world. So this is what Revelation is about. Over and over again throughout this book, Jesus is telling the story of the world. He is honest about the hardship, suffering, and persecution his people will face. Life between Christ's first and second coming will not be easy. But Christ continually reminds his people where history is heading. In the end, all the powers of darkness will be utterly destroyed as Christ establishes his kingdom on earth forever and ever. Eventually, suffering will give way to glory. Evil will give way to righteousness and sadness to joy. 
Already in our study of Revelation, we have seen this story of the world. In chapter six and seven, the story of the world was told through the breaking of wax seals on a scroll. Remember, Revelation is a different type of book than we're used to reading. It uses lots of symbolism to communicate its message. So the breaking of these seals describes the judgments, the trials, the difficulties of life between Christ's first and second coming. However, there's this pause that takes place between the breaking of the sixth and seventh seal as God reminds his people that they belong to him, that he has sealed them and he will bring them safely home to be with him. And so after this first telling of the story of the world, Jesus will rewind the tape and then he tells the same story, but from a different perspective in Revelation 8 and 9. And this time, instead of using scrolls and seals, he uses trumpets. And as we saw last week, the trumpets are warning blasts of God's judgment. So as each trumpet blows, God's just judgments fall on the earth. And these trumpet blasts show God's justice in punishing evil but they also reveal his mercy in that these are partial and limited judgments, warning blasts of a far greater and far more terrible judgment to come at the return of Christ. So the message of these first trumpets is repent, turn to God now while there's still time. However, just like there was a pause between the sixth and seventh seal, there's a pause between the sixth and seventh trumpets. And it's like God is calling a timeout so that he can specifically encourage and strengthen his church. So after all of these trumpet blasts of judgment, God wants to speak a word of grace and encouragement to his people. So this is what we have the privilege of looking at this morning in Revelation 10 and 11. What God wants to do in these two chapters is encourage his church to persevere in their witness, even in the midst of incredible satanic opposition. God wants his church to stay faithful to him and to faithfully proclaim the good news of the gospel to the world, no matter how angry and how hostile the world becomes. And how God is going to encourage his church to persevere is by assuring his dearly loved people that he is sovereignly ruling over all of history and he will preserve them and their witness to the world until his kingdom comes in power. So this is the main point of Revelation 10 and 11. So let's look together now at Revelation 10, beginning in verses one through seven. So in this section, we're going to see God's sovereign rule over all things. Verse one, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like pillars of fire. And he held a little scroll opened in his hand. He put his right foot on the sea, his left on the land. And he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. Then when he cried out, the seven thunders raised their voices. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders said and do not write it down. Then the angel that I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. He swore by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. 
there will no longer be a delay. But in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will be completed as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So in this passage, we are introduced to this massive, mighty angel who comes down and he plants a foot on the sea and a foot on the land. And this mighty angel is described as wrapped in a cloud and having legs like a pillar of fire. He has a rainbow over his head and his face is shining like the sun. So this angel is obviously reflecting the glory of God, but I think John is communicating more than just that. Think about another time in the Bible when there were clouds and pillars of fire together. It was when God was leading his people Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. After judging Egypt with the 10 plagues and powerfully saving and rescuing his people, the Bible said God led his people with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So I think what John is saying is that just like God led his people out of Egypt and into the promised land, so too this angel and his message will be what God will use to lead his people through the wilderness time between Christ's first and second coming and eventually into the promised land of new creation. The point is God will not abandon his church. He will lead and guide his people all the way to their promised future hope. And I think this is further emphasized by the rainbow over the angel's head. Throughout the Bible, rainbows symbolize God's covenant faithfulness to his people. After judging the world through the flood, God brought Noah and his family safely into the new world. He then promised he would never again flood the earth on account of humanity's sinfulness. And he put his rainbow in the sky as a sign, a guarantee of his promise. So what this angel's description is teaching us is that God is a covenant-keeping, faithful God who will bring his people through judgment and lead them safely into the promised land. And God is able to do this. He's able to guarantee this because he is sovereign over history. Notice what is in the angel's hand in verse two. There is a scroll that is opened. This is the scroll that had the seven wax seals on it that only Jesus was worthy to open back in chapters six and seven. This scroll is symbolic of God's plan for history, both of his judgment of the wicked and his redemption of his people. It tells the story of God's sovereign plan between Christ's first and second coming and how he will bring everything together under Christ at the end. So in other words, there is nothing that has happened or will happen that is outside of God's perfect plan. He will bring his purposes to completion at the return of Christ. There is absolutely nothing and no one that can stand in his way. And we are assured of this by noticing what the angel does. Look again at verse five. Then the angel that I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. Now, I just love this. 
This is a total power stance, signifying God's absolute control and authority over everything. The angel puts his right foot on the sea. He puts his left foot on the land and he raises his hand to heaven. The point being communicated is that there is nothing in the heavens above or the earth below or in the sea that God does not have authority over. He rules and reigns over all. This is because he is the creator of heaven and everything in it. He is the creator of earth and everything in it. And he is the creator of the sea and everything in it. All of creation belongs to him. And there is nothing happening outside of his control. And this is going to be especially comforting for his churches to be aware of. Since in the coming chapters, there will be these ferocious beasts that are described as coming up out of the sea and coming up out of the land. These beasts will be scary. They will be dangerous. However, what we must always remember is this picture of this mighty angel standing on the earth and the sea. Nothing, nothing is outside of God's control. Not even the dreaded beasts. Everything must work according to God's plan. The scroll has been written. The future is secure. And this is why in verse seven, the angel can confidently say, in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God might be completed. No, then the mystery of God will be completed. As he announced it to his servants, the prophets, God is like the home run hitter who calls the home run before he hits it. God knows what is going to happen because he has planned it all out and he has announced it beforehand to his prophets. And the angel calls this plan the mystery of God. So in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, the apostle Paul explains what this mystery is. He said, God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time. So here's the mystery to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. God's plan for the world is to bring everything together in Christ. And this has begun to be accomplished through Christ's death and resurrection, and it will be completed when Christ returns again to this earth. When the seventh trumpet blows, that is when God's plan to bring everything together in Christ will be accomplished. Now for the wicked, this will be a terrible day of God's judgment. But for Christ's people, for those who have loved him and long for his return, this will be a glorious day of rejoicing. God's people will have passed through the final judgment and entered into the promised land of the new creation. This is God's plan for the world and it will be completed. There is nothing that can stand in our God's way. However, before the final trumpet blows, the church is tasked with making this message of God's coming judgment and yet gracious salvation to those who would turn from their sins and trust in Christ, we are tasked with making this message known to the world. 
So this is what John turns his attention to next. In verses 8 through 11 of chapter 10, we get a vivid picture of how God wants his word to enter into our lives so that we can then faithfully speak it to others. So look with me at verses 8 through 11. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take and eat it. It will be bitter in your stomach, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I ate it, my stomach became bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So in this passage, John is being recommissioned as a prophet who receives God's word. So like the prophet Ezekiel who had to do the same thing, he is to ingest and digest God's word so that he can then faithfully deliver it to God's people. So the message contained in the scroll is bitter and sweet because it proclaims both judgment and salvation. God's judgments are sobering for us to read about. It is a scary and terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God does not take sin lightly, nor should he. He is righteously angry over the sin and the evil that has invaded and corrupted his good world, and he will justly punish it. And yet this scroll is also oh so sweet because it contains the message of salvation from God's wrath through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross to satisfy all of God's wrath toward his people's sins. So now all those who trust in Christ can be protected from God's judgment. They can enjoy the sweetness of knowing all their sins are forgiven and they have peace with God. Amazing grace How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And what makes this salvation even sweeter is that it comes with the promise of eternal life in the kingdom of God where everything will be made right again. So this is a gloriously sweet message to those who humble themselves before God and cry out to him for mercy. But this is a bitter message to those who arrogantly reject God and scorn his offer of salvation through Christ alone. Well, this is the message John is given to share with the churches. And this is the message that we as Christ's church are to share with the world. We are not to add to it or take away from it. We are to eat it whole and then speak it, even though it will be both bitter and sweet. So let's look together now at Revelation chapter 11. So in this chapter, in chapter 11, John is going to be symbolically describing the church as two witnesses. And these two witnesses are faithfully proclaiming the message of the gospel despite intense satanic opposition. So let's listen to how John describes the church's witness in Revelation 11, 1 through 6. Then I was given a measuring reed like a rod, 
with these words, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count those who worship there. But exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it because it is given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days dressed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. Okay. So in verse 1, we see that John is given this measuring rod to measure the temple and the altar and to carefully count those who worship there. Now, this is a beautiful picture of God's tender care for his people. You see, we are his temple, the place where he dwells, and he knows who each one of his people are. You are not a nameless face to God. He knows each one of his people and he will not lose one of them. He will protect and preserve our faith even through intense times of physical suffering and death. We are measured and counted by God. He knows us, he cares for us. But notice how honest John is about the physical dangers we will face for following Christ. He says in verse two, the nations will trample on the holy city for 42 months. So throughout Revelation, the reference to 42 months or 1,260 days, which is 42 times 30, so same thing, they refer to the same period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. So it's talking about the church age between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And I think the point John is making is that though God will keep his church spiritually safe, we are measured and counted. We cannot be lost. He will not keep us physically safe from the attacks and persecutions of the world. The honest truth is that the church will suffer severely between Christ's first and second comings. Todd Johnson, professor of global Christianity and mission at Gordon-Conwell, estimates that more than 70 million, 70 million Christians have been martyred over the last two millennia, more than half of which died in the 20th century under fascist and communist regimes. He also estimates that more that, that one million Christians were killed between 2001 in 2010, and about 900,000 were killed from 2011 to 2020. For 2,000 years now, the world has been trampling on Christians and doing all that it can to try to stomp out Christians' witness to the world. 
But no matter how hard the world tramples the church, they cannot silence the church's witness. Why? Why can't this world stop the church from sharing the gospel? Look again at verse 3. Because God has granted his two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days. There is nothing the world can do to stop Christ's church from advancing. Christ will build his church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Christ's people will take his gospel to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And there is nothing that the satanic powers of evil can do to stop it. And this is why John describes the witnesses as invincible until their witness is complete. It's not that the church can literally like spit fire at people or call down plagues at will. No, that's not what's going on. I think the idea is that just like the prophets of old who did these things, the church will triumph against the sinful and worldly powers that try to stop her. So in closing up the sky so that it would not rain, the prophet Elijah was demonstrating that God is the one true and living God. And in the plagues against Egypt, Moses, the prophet, was showing God's power to judge his enemies and rescue, deliver his people from their bondage to slavery. So I think similarly today, we as the church proclaim boldly and confidently that there is only one God and he is able to save his people from their slavery to sin. And all the evil powers of this world cannot stop that message from going out. But what is it that gives the church her power? How are we able to keep going in the midst of such satanic opposition? The answer is found in verse four. These witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So John describes the two witnesses as two olive trees and two lampstands. So this is how we know that the two witnesses represent the church, right? Because back in Revelation 1.20, John has told us that lampstands are the symbol he uses for the churches. So this is because churches, like lampstands, are to be a light to the world and bring God's presence to bear in their communities. But notice that John also calls the church two olive trees. Now, this is amazing because what John is doing is he's connecting this back into the Old Testament into Zechariah chapter 4. In that passage, Zechariah is talking about a lampstand that is standing between two olive trees. So think about what this means. Olive oil is what is used to keep the lampstands burning. So in other words, he is connecting the lampstand to its power source. So if we're to bring this imagery into our own day and age, it's like a generator that is connected to a gas pump. The idea here is that the power will always be on. And then Zechariah goes on to explain what this imagery means. He says the task before God's people back then of rebuilding the temple will not be done by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies. It will be God's spirit that will enable and empower God's people to do the work God has called them to do. So do you see what John is doing in connecting the church to the symbols of lampstands and olive trees? John is making the point that the church's power to be a faithful witness does not come from herself. It comes from the Holy Spirit 
what the church must always remember. It is that it is not by strength or by might, but by God's spirit that we will serve as God's faithful witnesses in the world. So what this means for us, New Covenant Bible Church, is that we must not put our confidence in our own abilities or wisdom. We do not have what it takes in ourselves to faithfully witness for Jesus Christ. Our hope, our confidence, our grounding must be in God alone. And I think what this looks like practically is we must be a praying church. We must be a church that recognizes our complete dependence on God's spirit to work. And isn't this exactly what Christ said in Acts 1.8? He told his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And as a result of the Holy Spirit's power, then you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So I love how James Hamilton summarizes these verses. He writes this, the church's power is in spirit-empowered, father-protected proclamation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's our power, church. Spirit-empowered, father-protected proclamation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. So dear brothers and sisters in Christ, the culture, it's gonna marginalize and malign us. They may even kill us and scatter us. But what they cannot do is stop God's message of salvation spreading throughout the whole earth. If God is for us, then who can be against us? God will sovereignly and powerfully preserve his church and her witness to the world until her work on earth is complete. But when her work on earth is complete, she will have the privilege of following in her Lord's footsteps and being killed by evil men. Look at verses seven through 10. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And some of the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Now, I love the start of verse seven. When they finish their testimony. Just like our Savior Christ was unable to be killed or harmed until his hour had come, so it is with his church. It is not until we have finished our witness that we will be killed. And at that time, the beast that comes up out of the sea, which represents the evil world powers arrayed against the church, at that time, 
the beast will seem to have finally triumphed. Shortly before Christ's return, it will appear that Christ's church has finally lost and that the kingdoms of this world that for millennia have sought to destroy and trample on Christ's church will have won. And at this time, there will be much rejoicing in the world. They will celebrate the downfall of Christianity. This is because they have hated God and his people who bore witness about him. And notice in verse 10 that John says, they viewed the church's witness as torment. Isn't this how many view the preaching of the gospel today? It torments those who hate God and want nothing to do with him. However, just as the world's party is in full swing and it looks as if Christ has lost, all of a sudden, God will powerfully vindicate his people. Just like Christ, his church will be resurrected and called up into heaven. Look at verses 11 and 14. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. (laughs) They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Take note. The third woe is coming soon. This is beautiful. Just as the church shares in Christ's suffering and death, so too will she share in his resurrection and glory. The beast cannot and will not win. God will bring each and every one of his people safely home to be with him. Not one of them will be lost. And this demonstrates to the world that the church belongs to God and God loves his people. And this causes a great fear to fall on all those who dwell on the earth. And at this time, God's judgment will begin to come and all those who have hated God and his people will be terrified and give glory to God. Now, I don't think this is a repentant giving glory to God. I think this is an, oh no, God is real and God is powerful kind of giving glory to God. It's a forced recognition of his glory, his majesty, his power, his sovereignty that they have spurned and hated all their lives. But at this point, it's too late. The final trumpet will blast and God's final judgment and final salvation will come. So listen to how John describes the climax of it all in verses 15 through 19. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. The 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun 
to reign. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, and to those who fear your name, both small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. And then this beautiful picture of God's presence coming with us. Then the temple of God in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder, an earthquake and severe hail. What a terrifying day for the sinful world. And yet a glorious day of rejoicing for God's people. Finally, God's kingdom will have come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He will judge all the peoples who have rejected him and he will reward those who have faithfully followed him. I love how Dennis Johnson describes this coming kingdom. He writes, dominion over the world without challenge or rival has come into the possession of our Lord and his anointed king. Without challenge, without rival. In the end, all of God's enemies will be destroyed. There will no longer be any beasts who can hurt and trample on God's people. There will no longer be anything left in all of God's creation that can harm God's people. All the sinful, selfish kingdoms of this world will be overthrown as God establishes his kingdom and his king on the earth forever and ever. In God's eternal kingdom, sin Suffering, death, pain, sorrow will be no more. The hardships and the struggles of this life will give way to peace and joy as all of God's people bask in the glory of God's presence. Beholding his beauty and finding our souls more deeply satisfied than we ever thought possible. This is the glorious future God has in store for his people. This is the great story of redemption that he has written. And this is the message he has empowered us to share. In conclusion, I want to share with you a poem James Hamilton wrote after meditating on this passage. Through flame and flood, with plague and blood, the gospel is proclaimed. The spirit flows, the church it grows, the beast he is enraged. Measuring rod and line outstretched, the father knows his own. As martyrs die, the saints will sigh, and they cry out, how long? And then at last, the trumpet blast, and Christ will reign as king. Creation sings, the praises ring for this the world was made. This is what the world was made for. And so, as God's people, we must persevere in our witness to the world, not looking to our own strength, but to God's spirit to enable us to faithfully proclaim this message.
And let's do so with confidence because we know that God is sovereign over history and he will preserve us and our witness to the world until his kingdom comes in power. Let's pray. Sovereign God, we praise you that you have no rival. There is nothing that can stop you from accomplishing your plan. Your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long for that day. Help us as your people to persevere in faith and faithfulness to you. Fill us with your spirit so that we may proclaim the good news of the gospel to the world. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.